You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. How's it going, Jay? It's going good. Hey, I'm having a really busy day because we have a lot of rigors coming and going tomorrow. What's happening? So with bringing on the horizontal mill, it's a production, just beast. It's great. We love it. Well, first of all, our pro pallet system, which is usually on the bed of a table in a vertical mill, we've made a four-sided tombstone. That was in the last video. We're ramping up production on those. So we're able to just pretty much repost patterns of existing programs and put it on four sides. Right now, we don't have enough fixtures, so it's typically like two sides, uh, which is fine. So we've just found that we have two VF2s that we are just absolutely not running. Like they have not turned on in probably over a month. The only time we've been using them is to just keep the coolant fresh. It's like, well, we could put it on the horizontal, but just run it in the adjacent VF2. So uh, one of them is a 2017. It's got, I want to say maybe eight or 10,000 hours on it. Super accurate. Great. It's a 24 station side mount. Now has is standardized with 30. So it's like this weird odd man out. So that is being picked up in the morning at 8.30. Awesome. I need to be in Anaheim, which is going to be about an hour and a half to two hours of a drive in the morning to go see a used CMM that I purchased, a Zeiss Eclipse 700. It's our first CMM. We have a new product line that will, it doesn't require, but it makes it so much easier when you could just CMM something. Okay. So we're buying it from a, it's funny, they're an existing customer. So um, buying it from them, trucking it up in the morning, that'll be on the truck at 8.30. So in two different cities at the exact same time, we will have one VF2 being loaded onto a bed, leaving our facility, the CMM being loaded onto our customer, coming to us, being dropped off around maybe mm, rigor speed, 10.30 a.m., And then we're going to put it in place, do a rough level, and then we're going to build the room around it, the air-conditioned room, just because we can. We know how to build stuff around here. And so, yeah, it's pretty busy. You know what just happened? A guy comes up to me and says, wow, Carlos, my engineer, says, wow, machine's going tomorrow, huh? And I said, yep. Power removed? No. But can you help John with that? Yeah. But air is removed, I tell him. He's like, is the spindle head blocked? And I'm like, no. So of all the people that know that the machine was leaving tomorrow, somehow we overlooked the need to block the spindle head to the table using the included bracketing. Hmm. It, it was, I, I'm still working through because it's literally happened like 15 minutes ago. Like, what is the lesson there? What happened where we had about six or seven people looking at it and we forgot the obvious thing of blocking the head to the table? I don't know. It's an interesting thought experiment. Like, why did that happen? Why did we overlook that? We don't move machines often. Maybe it's out of sight, out of mind, but that's happening right now. I would probably try to tie some kind of checklist into the process of contacting a rigger. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Because I'm not going to need to block the head of a spindle out unless I'm going to be moving a machine. And if I'm just putting it up on skates and drifting it 15 feet across my own shop floor, well, depending on the machine. Yeah. But probably not. And if I'm hiring a rigger and a machine's coming or going, then there's like a whole pre-rigger checklist. Mm-hmm. Is air disconnected, power disconnected, fluids are taken out, tools are removed, any fixturings off the table, any wiring we're keeping, any like, is everything ancillary that we're taken off, taken off. And then 
is the table clean? Is the table oiled? Are the ways clear? Are whatever, yeah. and then spindle blocking. And mm -hmm. that should be a pretty easy checklist that you could make a generic version of that would cover both moving and selling a lathe or a mill mm -hmm. and have it just be yeah, enough. I just wonder the utility of that. Where would we keep the list? It seemed intuitive like, oh, we've moved lots of machines, especially in the last four years. We've moved yeah. two times in, in the past trailing four years. We're good at this. We just overlooked it. And it's just, I love failure and flaws because they show you areas where you need to improve. The riggers would have shown up and they would have said, oh, it's not blocked. Oh, crap. And actually, the solution is to take a little nail gun, a nail gun air compressor and just plumb it in because we don't want to turn off the air to the shop and just to hook it up. So we're working with fittings just to get it to power up so that we can jog the spindle down. We're not doing tool changes or anything like that. Just jog it in place. But yeah, yeah process. It just underscores the need for good processes. For me, it highlights that no matter how competent you are, relying on memory to do things is a process without guardrails. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the exact, like, when you set up a new job, do you have a checklist? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of our jobs, we don't, and I'm working on creating more, but basic things like, I'm going to be resetting up a recurring job after this podcast. And it was one of the first ones that really pushed me to the point where I had to make sure I had a checklist because it's a single big vacuum fixture that is one half of it's on a Pearson MPS, the other half of it's on a custom built riser. It's got interconnected vacuum hoses. It's got alignment pins that had to be put in one spot for op one and then moved for op two. It's got a bunch of things going on. And it was always so nerve wracking to set that job up and go, did I remember everything? Yeah. Did I forget something? Right. And going through the list and going, okay, these tools, I just have the tool list and everything is in there. Any notes I have about gauge length or holders are all there. Mm -hmm. I need to do this and this and this and put this tool in with this much stick out for this job. And then I just walk through it. It's a laminated checklist. We've been using that checklist for over a year now. Mm -hmm. And it has made setting up that job, while not necessarily a lot faster, it's made it much less strenuous mentally. Yeah. Because I can just, yeah. and I have the things on the list in the order they should be done. Mm -hmm. Because the classic, oh, I forgot to do this or that. I need to take this thing back off the machine mm -hmm. and put that gasket in place that I forgot to put in that spot that I can't reach now. Yeah. That right. kind of dumb stuff. Yeah. I've got a guy, he's a pilot. Pilots work with checklists. You know, another guy's an officer, former officer in the Air Force. They just work off checklists. So you have a competent person creating the checklist gets approved and then it just gets dispersed in mass to, to everyone. So nothing gets, yeah, yeah that's just a way to go. If I was going to try to find a place to put a rigor related checklist, who contacts the rigor and is it like, are you pulling up a contact on your phone and calling them or is somebody else pulling them up in your shop software and contacting them by email or how, how does that go? You know what? I'm going to throw out a term. I'm just searching it right now. Convergent and divergent thinking. Okay. Give me a second here. It's basically like Legos. You can play convergently or divergently. Convergently will be like you get a new set, you follow the instructions. Yeah. A couple of weeks, months go by, the kids blow it up. Now they're working divergently. They're creating new things with it. Yep. And so that's one of those things that like that's the difficulty of our jobs, our positions, is everything we do is divergent. A lot of it, it is, certainly. 
even if we're working with a bunch of pieces that themselves are convergent in their little area, yes, the process of deciding what we need and assembling all of it yeah, is a divergent choose-your-own-adventure book. Well, so for example, there's a big difference between procurement and purchasing. Procurement's hard. Finding the component, yep. getting quotes, researching it, backup vendor. Yep. And then once that's in place, then that goes to purchasing, which purchasing, if you've seen our videos, we just use a, a customer and barcode scanning software that just orders it. So we don't have a purchasing agent. So that's the tricky part in our positions. We're always having to come up with these firsts. Like I've said, and it's an Elon Musk quote, I work on things that are broken or new and everything is always broken if you dig down into it. I mean, if we're, you and I are both lean thinkers, there's always going to be a better way to do something. There's more waste we can eliminate, but we just don't see it. Or we see too much of it everywhere. When mm. I walk around my shop, normally what I don't think is, wow, everything is humming. There's no waste of time or motion. Everything's perfect. I walk around my shop and I see a million things that I want to address. Mm-hmm. And that can really easily get paralyzing. Yeah. Yeah. And demoralizing if you don't have your emotions in check. You can easily yeah. get overwhelmed. So I've got two mills I have to set up after this podcast. And one of them is for a well-defined checklisted process that we've done many times before, really happy with the results. It's for our Swift Press vacuum plate. And so it's the largest single piece of metal we ever put in one of our speedios. It's like 15 and an eighth by 20 and an eighth. It barely fits in the travels, but it's fun. Everything there is well-defined. And then the other mill I've got to set up is a 10-piece run on a hasty prototype fixture of a job we've run four or five times now. And we finally were designing a production fixture. We had a batch ready of this part ready to run. And then our vendor hit us with a delay on the particular size bar stock we needed to make the fixture. And so I contacted the customer and said, hey, can we have a little more time? Because they had given us the order a few weeks ago. And I had said, okay, we actually, we had a convergence of complications. We went, we had to get a different vendor for the actual part material, which meant we had to put out the RFQ to a different company, verify the specs, get a sample of the material, make sure the client was happy with it because we had to change brands. We were, were using plastics, but we had to change brands on plastic, cut sample parts, send them to the client, make sure they were happy, then put the PO in, have the cut parts arrive, check to make sure they were all correct. And the process of getting a new vendor for the material and redesigning an actual production-ready fixture that would go on our series 450 machine and would allow us to use palletized workloading and just all that. That took several weeks to get all that done. And we were ready to pull the trigger, make the fixture run the parts. And then that bar stock of that particular size we needed was going to be an extra 10 days out. So I had to text the client and say, are you guys okay to wait a little longer? They're like, nope, we're pretty much out. We need some right now. Mm. And so I have to go back to the old dumb way that we prototyped it where I've got a zero op in a vice and then I flip onto this and then I flip onto that and put screws through the part. And then I've got these couple holes that I have to drill, but I can't drill all the way through. And then I have to chase them with a hand drill and just dumb. Yeah. Just dumb. And it's frustrating to have to do things like that, but it's my own fault because if I had gotten on the ball earlier, mm -hmm. sooner, I wouldn't have had this particular problem because the, the 10 day lead time from the material, from the metals vendor is annoying, mm -hmm. but it's not the end of the world. There's a lot you can do in 10 days to prep also. Yes. We can finish 
all the fixture cam and everything. So when the material gets here, it's like on the saw, on the mill, same day, ready to rock. Right. Yeah. So we need to make sure to use the next period of time to get that ready. But we had another supply chain thing come up. We have some sewn nylon webbing parts that we make. And we were looking for an alternate material, a slightly different width, a slightly different thickness of webbing for one part that we sew a lot of. We go through about 4,000 to 5,000 yards of this material a month. And so we'd been shopping around for a while. This is the procurement part, finding an alternative material, testing out a bunch of samples. Some felt really nice in the hand, but they didn't sew well, or they they frayed too easily, or they showed wear and abrasion very quickly. But we tried a bunch of different samples. We found one we liked. We went to put in our order today, and the vendor told us there's a 30-week lead time. And they said they had enough stock on hand to give us material for three to four days. At our current monthly production rate, they had enough material for us to sew these parts for three to four days, and then we'd be out again. But Andrew, you knew this going into it because when you ordered the sample, they told you it'd be a 30-week lead time, right? Not a peep. What? About lead time. There was no indication from them that this was not an in-stock item at all. No, no communication about lead times on this. So if you work as a salesperson or you're quoting things, if a customer contacts me and they want us to make something and I know I can't deliver it until quarter two of 2024, mm-hmm. I'm going to lead with that. That's got to be above the fold. Yeah. Right. That's the headline. Yeah. <laughs> Coming in quarter two, 2024, this material that you might really like will be available in April. And if I had known that two months ago, when I got the first samples and we started testing this material, I would have moved on immediately. It doesn't yeah, matter course. to me if the material's awesome. It's unobtainium. Right. And it's not even anything that wild. It's just like five sixteenths webbing of a certain weave and type. So that was really frustrating. And now that we know the spec of the material we like, we're going to go back to all the other vendors and say, hey, we got this sample or that sample from you. We're actually looking for something with these exact specs. Now that we know what we want, do you have it? Mm. And if we can find an alternate vendor, I will absolutely go with the alternate vendor if they can deliver this month. Yeah. Because what we can't do, if this is going to be a sort of a running change where we update an existing product line and use this new, slightly upgraded material, we cannot make the changeover head down that path for six to eight weeks and then have to revert back to the previous material because we can't get supply. Mm -hmm. We cannot make the change until we can reliably guarantee we're going to have the material to sustain the change. Otherwise, we're just shooting ourselves in both feet. Yeah. Hey, let me take this. So you did a shout out to people in sales. I'm going to take it to level two. While you're talking, I have this U-cup seal on my desk. And it has been so frustrating because I went to their online catalog got all the specs, designed this seal into a new product in Fusion. And then when it got time to source everything, hey, can you please send me a quote? That's going to be six to eight weeks out. Okay. Oh, oh, by the way, the signature. Be? What's that? The quote's going to take six weeks? Or no, the- no, 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 no. She said, here's your quote. It's six to eight weeks out. And then I'm looking at this and I'm going, and? So can you provide an alternative? So I'm like, okay, I I realized she wasn't going to play well. So I said, here are four different types of materials in different durometers, like a a Buna and Buna oil resistant, Buna FDA approved, those types of like minor things. It just doesn't matter to the 
thing. And she said her answers were very vague, like not great stock on some of these. And I just got to the point where I go, well, either I request a new salesperson or I just go to a new company. I opted to just go to new company because obviously there's something in that chain there where there's not a feedback loop. There's not training. It may be a cultural issue. I stack every Tuesday with a bunch of meetings. That's one of the things that always comes up in one of the four meetings that I have inside the company is the cultural issues. Hey, put yourself in the operator's shoes. Put yourself in the client's shoes. Put yourself in the delivery driver's or the UPS driver's shoes. How can we best do this? Because that stuff is toxic. People don't see it. Certain people are just there to, to, to cash a paycheck, which I understand. I don't think you would last in at least my company with that type of attitude. But it's not that hard to go, okay, obviously, we're not here to sell rubber O-rings. We're here to solve the customer's problem. And in doing that, me saying six to eight weeks, that doesn't help anything. Or when, when I say, okay, I've done more research, please do this. And they say, not great. You're not helping me move forward. And so yeah. I just, I'm opting to just opt out of those types of relationships. And especially if you're talking about a single source kind of thing where you cannot easily shop around to an alternative vendor, sure. then you have to work on that relationship and dig into what's going on here and ask harder questions. But if it's a commodity product, oh, if it's a commodity on. like an O-ring or raw materials like nylon webbing, you bet your sales team better be on top of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, one of our local material vendors, I remember this years ago, and I, I don't know how it applied back then, but I do remember they quoted me something. We were a new client to them. They, they reached out a few days later. Hey, just following up on that quote. No, I'm going with another company. Okay. Since you're new, Jay, can you just give me some details? It would really help us. I need to fill out a lost sale report. Great. Yeah. Here's why this all went down like this. And that I realized that was a really great process for that material vendor because they are selling commodity items. I'm trying to yeah. figure out how we can do that here at Pearson. There's something there. Just haven't fully baked that idea. Well, how much does your sales team interact with customers? I, it, in, in my company, basically almost 100% of our sales are no handholding website only. We don't talk to the customer at all. They order the thing mm -hmm. and we ship it yeah. that day or next yeah. day. The number of times that customers have questions that aren't adequately answered by our resources mm -hmm. is pretty low, and we don't have any kind of lost sales feedback, right? but we probably should, Yeah. although it's hard to even know who to contact for that information. I'm not going to say holsters are, are commodity items because they're not. This is an interesting thing. This is, an, 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 I think, a fun question is... Uh -huh. Are commodities in the eye of the beholder? <laughs> That's a great point. And in a lot of cases, they, they really are. Yeah. Well, they especially really if you're are. looking on Amazon. Yeah. It, Amazon is, everything on Amazon is pretty much commodity. Yeah. 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 It's like, oh, look, three different unpronounceable names, all shipping the exact same product. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's tough. But in a lot of cases... If I want to go buy a burger, what's your go-to fast food burger? Well, out here on the West Coast, it's In-N-Out. Yep. And that would be your choice of what's available in your area, In-N-Out. Yep. Around here, I'd probably just go Burger King. Mm. 
And to me, Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's, and Hardee's, and Carl's Jr. or Rally's, or Steak and Shake, they're basically interchangeable. I'm going to get a fast food burger. I'm not yeah. that concerned about it. But other people care a great deal. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to Steak and Shake. I don't like McDonald's burgers. Eh, well, if you have a palate that cares about that, then it's not a commodity. Sure. Yeah. And if Steak and Shake is closed for repairs, they had a tree fall on Steak and Shake and they're closed for the week, you don't want to go to McDonald's. Right. Yeah. But I'm like, I don't care what's on my way. What am I driving past? Am I going to drive five minutes out of my way to go to Steak and Shake? Yeah. No. Well, I was going to say, depending on the resources, if I go home and they're like, hey, we're going to eat out tonight. Let's get burgers. We will drive past all of those fast food restaurants and oh, for wait sure. in a line at In-N-Out. But if it's for lunch, no, just whatever's geographically closest. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. They're all the same. Yeah. Totally. Wow. On the supply chain thing, another funny one happened to me. I decided over the summer that I wanted to make some changes in my office. And what I particularly wanted was a comfortable chair that I could sit in. And if I needed to take a quick nap, I think mm -hmm. we may have talked about this before. And so I shopped around. I was looking at a nice quality, like wood and leather, compact zero gravity recliner. And there's a lot of options. There's some on Amazon. There's some that are made by small companies. There's the whole furniture industry when you get above Ikea mm -hmm. is weird. And there's a lot of woo-woo, like marketing, branding stuff. You know, I don't really know where a lot of this stuff's being made. Are these companies reselling it? Are they building it from scratch? I don't really know. And so I finally picked out the one that I thought I wanted. I did a bunch of price shopping around. I wanted something simple, I, manual. I didn't want like a vibrating massage chair or a heated lumbar panel. I just, I wanted a comfortable chair that was going to be durable and would recline. Manual, no electronics. So I found a company, placed my order on like a Saturday and got an order confirmation email. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll, should ship pretty soon. It's coming from Chicago. That's a one-day ship. And then by the end of the following week, I had not gotten a shipping confirmation email. So I contacted them, and this was at the end of July. And they said, oh yeah, your order will ship by August 31st. And I was completely flummoxed. Like, I ordered on your website. Right. I did not order a as far as I understood, I did not order a custom-built chair. Yeah, not made to order. I picked from the available drop-down options, added to cart, and paid for it. And what they told me was, oh, well, if you scroll down on the page and you go to the second tab, which is hidden, and it's uh, features and benefits, and scroll to the bottom of the list in features and benefits, it says this chair is made to order with a seven to 10-week lead time. I'm like, that is, I said this in the email, I'm like, a seven to 10 week lead time is neither a feature nor a benefit. Yeah, I would like to cancel my order and have my money refunded. And what they said back to me was, we charge a 15% restocking fee on any orders aged over 24 hours. Wow. Restocking an item that doesn't exist. And that was exactly my response. I'm like, you can't restock a thing you haven't stocked. Yes. And they would not budge on it. So my options were either charge back the credit card, pursue fraud channels, yep, or let it ride, wait for the recliner, and see how it shakes out. Mm -hmm. And what I opted to do was because I, I actually did really want this chair. I mm -hmm. waited for it. 
and it arrived and it's awesome. It's super comfortable. I love the recline. It's great. I'm going to wait till I've had it for a month or two and then leave the company a terrible review. There you go. Because it's not about the chair at yeah. that point. Yeah. And the stupidity of a company policy that, first of all, it, I have bought things. Many times I have bought things where it's like, hey, this item is non-returnable. Like you buy firearms or ammo anywhere, 100% non-returnable. Mm -hmm. You can't take your box of ammo back to the store and say, I, I don't, maybe if you're good friends with the owner, maybe he'll swap you something. But generally those things are not returnable. Once they leave the store, mm -hmm. you can't bring them back. Yep. And that's just normal. And that doesn't scare me off if it's fully disclosed. Mm -hmm. And finding out that they didn't have this in stock, it was going to be more than a month till they would ship it. And they were going to charge me a bunch of money to give me my order back, to cancel my order, even though they had not yet done anything except process a digital payment. Yeah. Was pretty mind boggling. And I think about it every time I sit in my chair. I'll probably get over it. The chair's comfy. I like it a lot. Yeah. But the customer service on that is just abysmal. Yeah, that's pretty bold. Uh, you know what? Uh, what scares me is that may happen in this company and I don't know about it. And I know that it has happened. Well, you called me one time saying, hey, I wanted to <laughs> order. Classic. We'll tell the story. I'll throw myself under the bus. You were ordering. Well, what was it? You, probably a bunch of MPSs or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I was ordering four or five MPSs. Yeah. And you asked a sales guy, in-house sales guy, hey, can you throw in a few shirts? And his reply was, I think, no, we can't. I'm not authorized. Or some BS passed the buck. So you and I being friends, you said, I just want to let you know what happened. And I'm like, what size of shirt and how many would you like? <laughs> yeah. So, any, anytime someone's spending four figures yeah. comfortably, giving them a free t-shirt should not be a big deal. And it's the kind of thing that in, in my case, like we have a few things we give away. We give all of our customers get stickers uh -huh. and we have a particular product that we're currently giving away, which is we had a dealer out on the West coast who was selling our little machine Kydex wallets. And this was one of our original dealers for anything we made. It was the first CNC product I released back in 2014. And that company was closing. It was a small shop, basically owner operated. And he wanted to do other things. And so he closed down and he sent me back a big box full of inventory. I had not realized how much he had had that was still old stock from like 2016, 2017. It was just on a shelf somewhere. So he sent me a bunch of this stuff back. And it's a bunch of color variations and options we don't even offer anymore. Plastic colors, we don't even stock for anything anymore. You still sell, though, right? We do have the wallet listed in a couple of variations on our website. But basically right now, we're taking all that inventory and we're uh -huh. just giving it away. Okay. If you order over a certain quantity, you get a free shock wallet. That's great. Yeah. And that's built into our website in such a way that it automatically adds to your cart. You don't have to request it. There's no coupon code. It goes into your cart, noted as a free item with a $0 balance. So you don't think we've snuck something in and tried to charge you for it. And I have consistently been telling my customer service and shipping staff that I am happy to have them give things away. What I don't want to have is problems end up on my desk that don't need to be there. Oh, I like that. And in some cases, that has changed. If a customer gets a thing and realizes they needed a slightly different version because there was some miscommunication or misunderstanding on their part about which exact variation of the gun they have. We've had this discussion before. Our old approach was, it used to be, because <laughs> I'm a stingy bootstrapper, I did not want to cover return shipping on an order where it was clearly the customer's mistake. 
Yeah. Where it wasn't that we had shipped them the wrong thing, is that they had ordered something not understanding it. They'd ordered the wrong thing. We ship them exactly what they ordered. They get it and go, oh no, this is the wrong thing. And they want to send it back. Yeah. Because we provide free shipping on orders over 50 bucks. So we've already paid to ship it to them. They get it and go, eh. And then they want to, they want us to pay to ship it back. And I was always like, nope, return shipping's on you. Yep. But at a certain point, that's just not worth it. Even though as we get into a, if you, we call it gen pop, general population, you get into a more gen pop market, your returns rate always climbs. Mm-hmm. If you're selling a specialized product to a very niche group of customers, you can have a really low return rate because people who are looking for your specific thing will have a grid to understand how it's not a commodity product and they'll pick the exact thing that you sell and they'll know what they need it for. But I told my customer service guys, look, at this point, just give them a return label. What, what is care. the cost on that? So this is where the complexity gets weird. If the customer wants to reuse the packaging you shipped it to them in, and you shipped it with the free flat rate packaging from US Postal Service, either Priority or Express, you have to use the same rate to reship it back. Mm-hmm. So you can't have sent them a thing in Priority and have it sent back first class. Sure. And so what we've changed to doing is in a lot of cases, if they just need a substitution of one thing or the other, we will actually not have them send it back first. We will chase the first package with a second one. And the second one will contain the item they actually want along with a folded up, pre-labeled, lightweight first class return mailer. Yeah. So they don't have to print anything out. They don't have to download anything. They don't have to drop it off anywhere. They can literally put it in their mailbox and it will come back to us. Mm-hmm. And that costs us probably four or five bucks, depending oh, on how far it's okay. going. Yeah. It's not bad. Almost all of our packages are under a pound and they fit inside a number three envelope. Got it. Padded envelope. And so looking at that and saying, hey, the lowest friction way to make the customer as happy as possible, as quickly as we can, is to not wait for them to send the thing back to us before we send them out the thing that they want is just chase the first package with the second one immediately and give them everything that they need to send the first thing back with as little friction as possible. Mm -hmm. Even though that's dollars out of our pocket, it's stress off my mind and stress off my mind is worth a lot of dollars. Yep. Yep. Pretty much. But it absolutely is a cultural change in terms of thinking about what we are willing to give versus what we expect our customers to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think the tone for this is all set by Amazon. Amazon's just like, oh yeah, free return, so-and-so. And I distinctly remember at a certain point, they stopped fully refunding a lot of things. Like you send something back to Amazon and they deduct a shipping charge from your mm. refund in many mm. cases. I've run into that a number of times. And that's our current policy on returns versus exchanges. If a customer wants to exchange something, we chase the shipment immediately. If a customer wants to just return it for a refund, we will normally email them a label that they can just print off and stick on the package. And then when it gets back to us, they get their refund minus shipping cost. There you go. We treat shipping charges in case of a return as non-refundable. Okay. And that's clearly stated in our policy and FAQ because I have no problem with a customer trying a product out and sending it back. In most cases, we can't resell it. It's, mm-hmm. been, it's been used. It's not restockable. We can use it for demos or training or giveaways. Sometimes we donate gear to police departments. There's a bunch of different things we can do with it. It doesn't have to go in the trash, but we cannot just repackage it, restock it on the shelf and resell it. Mm-hmm. 
And so we're already eating the cost of that unit. When it gets returned, it's not going to be financially returning anything to us. And it's not unreasonable, I don't think, to say to the customer, if we're giving you a courtesy return, you got it. It's not defective. It was the right product. We shipped you what you ordered and you decide you don't like it. You want to send it back. Then if you used our free shipping option, we deduct $5 from your refund to cover the cost of that shipping label. Yeah. It's very no deal. It's five bucks. Yeah. And that's built into our response template. When a customer emails us in and wants to request a return, we have a pre-made email template we send back to them that explains the process, how long it usually takes to receive it back and process it and for them to get their refund. And then we explain that if you used our free shipping, there'll be a $5 deduction from your order refund. If you paid for priority or express shipping, those charges are non-refundable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people don't really complain about it because we're very upfront and transparent. We put that information above the fold. We try to make sure it's basically impossible to miss it. Yeah, that's good. It's not buried on a tab at the bottom no. of the page. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> I'll send you the link after the podcast. You should look at the page and mm-hmm. see if I'm like, I would never, ever, ever have found that if you didn't tell me exactly where to look for it. That's not good. Doesn't yeah. work for me. <laughs> wow. I, gosh, I remembered that I bought office chairs. Company out of New York. That's what it was. Went through the whole process, checked out. Several weeks later, what happened to those chairs? Went back through my emails, no confirmation. Went back to the website, called them. Hey, I didn't get a confirmation. I thought that I should have received this by now. We don't see your transaction. Went, looked through the credit card statement, nothing. Reordered. I, that was probably the first red flag. I should have just walked because you can get these. They're air on chairs. They're great. They're the best office chairs. Reordered free shipping if you order two. So two weeks later, one shows up. Okay, great. Well, one out of two, I'll take it. Two more weeks later, two show up. And I'm like, okay, all right. Well, they screwed up. I ordered two. They shipped me three. Great. Someone had dug into, I want to say like the database for their e-commerce site and found all these orders that had been lost. So, and then just ran them through. And then processed them. So we had three wonderful Aeron chairs. We're using all three. Probably needs to order a fourth, but. I, I don't. But you paid for three. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, well, because I we've received stuff before where they're like, oh, this terrible company that we have to do business with sent us another bag of whatever commodity item. That's on them. Typically we say, hey, you shipped us an extra, please bill it for us. But man, I am so tempted every now and then to go, well, this is how they're going to pay for their lack of good processes, but you know, in the end I got to sleep at night. So we typically let them know that's the bottom line. Yeah. If it's a thing that I'll use, I want to pay for it. If it's a thing that I'm like, Hey, you sent me this extra thing that I don't need. And if you want it back, I will lift two fingers to make this happen, but not a whole hand. Yes. There you go. So if you want it back, yeah, send me a label. If it needs to have a pickup scheduled, schedule a pickup Mm -hmm. and you can have it back. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I don't want the whole podcast to be just complaining about supply chain and bad sales practices. A few things are on my radar that I'm working on that are really exciting for me. Yeah, cool. We just got a new 3D printer. I brought a Bamboo Labs X. X1. The one that can, yeah, the one that can print carbon. X1. uh, Filming. 
we are replacing our 2018 Raze 3D Pro 2 mm. with the Bamboo Labs. For a little while, we'll be running them side by side until we get comfortable because we have to change to a new slicing software and there's some workflow changes. But the Bamboo Labs is faster, more compact, can have more different filaments loaded at a single time. It takes four with the AMS on top versus the two that the Pro 2 can take. And the Raze 3D has been a great printer. The slicer is great. File management's easy. Uploading and downloading things from the printer is really, really, really nice. And it's basically been maintenance-free. It's just mm. run like a tank. We lubricate the rails. We make the, make sure the machine's clean. And it just, it's great. It's been super reliable. Do you remember I suggested that one? Yeah. 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 It's been great. We're really glad we got it. Okay, good. When I was getting ready to update our 3D printer, I was thinking basically the, the Pro 2, there was a software update and some hardware mods you could do to speed the machine up, but they also recommended changing to a different viscosity of filament. They had a different class of PLA. They called like hyper, hyper really? FFF. Yeah. Okay. So Raise 3D has gradually gotten their machines to run faster and faster and faster, but that process becomes much more sensitive to filament performance and flow characteristics. Mm. And so there was this you know, downloaded a bunch of stuff, would have had to flip the machine over, take the bottom cover plate off, mess with some hardware, push in some software updates to get my machine to run at the faster speed. And I just decided, you know what? It's a five-year-old machine. It's been super reliable. I would rather just replace it now than try to hot rod it and find that I either messed it up or it's not as reliable now or whatever. And so I looked at the Raze Pro 3, which is the new generation of the thing. It's going to be about 5,500 bucks, wow. something like that. It was more expensive. But it does have big build volumes, don't they? Yeah. Not that much bigger than the Bamboo Labs. Like 300 millimeter cube or something? Bamboo yeah, is so 256 I, cubic. Yeah. So the, yeah, the Pro I think too, I think is like 300 by 300 by 270 or 280. Okay. Ugh. So it's like 12 by 12 by 11.8 inches. Yeah. And the Bamboo Labs is close to that. And for the kinds of things we print. Yeah. It has no impact at all. Most right. of the things we print are the size of a fist or smaller. So for us, it's going to have zero impact on our workflow to go to a slightly smaller build table. And it's going to free up table space. It's going to make that machine easier to just deal with. And I'm really excited about it. It showed up today. We were unboxing it. We already have a cart set up for it. So we got it out. We're getting the AMS on it. We got all the brackets and the foam and the little cardboard things. They really do a nice job. And they package and nest all the parts inside yeah. the enclosure of the machine. So it ships in a really compact way. I thought the same thing. The, the packaging was as amazing as the performance of Yeah, the, it's yeah, really, really it's cool. Incredible. So I'm really excited for that. And that whole thing was like 16 or 1700 bucks. That sounds right. Yep. Which is wild to me because I could get essentially three printers for the price of the Raise 3D Pro 3. Yeah. And this is the, even if they were slower, which they're not. Mm -hmm. The two slow spindles is faster than one hyper spindle yep. thing is totally true. Yep. And the ability to have one machine set up just to run really hardcore filaments and another one set up to run all your basic PLAs and another one to set up to run any kind of ABS, PETG, polycarbonate, anything else weird you're printing. You could not have to do all the filament changeover and monkeying around, just send it to that one or send mm -hmm. it to that one. And that ability to have those machines run on demand is awesome. So I'm super excited about that. We also have a few other things on the CNC's we've been working on. I told you since the last time we podcasted that I had ChatGPT help me write some macros. Yeah. And this was a fun story. So what I was trying to do was uh, integrate a chip fan onto Mill One, which we use for aluminum cutting primarily. And 
I had bought a couple different fans. I bought one from Haas. I bought one from another company that probably makes the one for Haas. They're identical except for the branding. And then I bought a couple of chip fans off Alibaba. Just real basic, generic, shorter bladed ones, smaller overall diameter, clearly less robustly made, but a heck of a lot cheaper. And I had just never gotten around to programming these chip fans. And I knew you have to ramp them up slowly. You can't just go 8,000 RPM, go. Right. Because on some machines, that is a gradual ramp up. On a Speedio, you will absolutely fling your fan to pieces. Tangential projectile. Yeah. Yes. An instant gyroscopic grenade. Do not recommend. There you go. So I was talking to Easton Benrick at Moria about how he was doing it because he had done a thing with Ryan Nolan where they had used a custom G-code where you could just put a single line custom designated G-code that would call an entire subprogram, run your fan pattern over your vices or parts or whatever. And it was really easy. You just put it in as a pass-through command in your cam. It's beautiful. And so I looked at the program that Easton had sent me as a sample of what he'd used at the time. And what he had done to ramp up was essentially copy-paste a block of text. And it, there, it was a dwell command and a spindle speed command. It was like dwell for a quarter second at a thousand RPM, dwell for a quarter second at 2000 RPM and just incrementing up every quarter second or so by a thousand RPM. So it goes pretty quickly gong, 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 up to full speed. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted was a way to use macros to write a much smoother, gradual ramp up that was more fluid. And so I sat down with ChatGPT and I said, I'm, I want to write a macro that uses these variables. And I specified the variables that I wanted to have designated, which number range was in play. And I have a starting spindle speed of zero. I have a target spindle speed of 8,000 RPM. I want this macro to loop every 10th of a second and add 200 RPM to the spindle every time it loops until I have reached the target. And then I wanted to, because this was just a test program, I was not actually running anything. I just wanted to dwell for half a second. And then I want to take the exact same loop and reverse it. I want a starting spindle speed of 8,000. I want a target spindle speed of zero. I want a 200 RPM per 10th of a second decrement till we're done, then end the program. Mm-hmm. And it actually gave me back surprisingly usable code. I had to reformat a bunch of things. I actually then gave it a second prompt and said, using the appropriate code syntax for a brother CNC machine, give me this code. And it, in, the, in the initial draft, it had put like semicolons in every line in between the block of code and the comment. And it actually commented out all the lines. It gave me the macros. At the beginning, it gave me a header block where it said, this macro equals this with a comment. This macro equals this with a comment. It gave me like not just code, but fully commented code. Yeah. But when I asked it to do it in the syntax or format for a brother, it went through and took out all the semicolons that fell between the code line and the comment line because my machine would choke on those. Mm. It didn't make it edit free, but it cleaned up a bunch of things that I would have had to tweak in every single line. And then I copy pasted that out into Visual Studio Code and made a few adjustments, popped it on the machine. And a basic thing, which was that I hadn't thought, you cannot command, at least on our machines, you cannot command a S0M3. You can't tell it to turn the spindle clockwise at zero RPM. It'll throw an alarm. That's okay. not a designatable speed. Mm-hmm. So I had to revamp the thing. So when it called the tool, it started the tool at 200 RPM. It just automatically does the first step of the increment, then it enters the macro loop, then it ramps up to 8,000, dwells for a half second, ramps down to 200, not to zero. And then when it reaches 200, the loop stops, it runs through the rest of the code, it stops the spindle and ends the program. And that actually worked great. 
It was amazing. And it wasn't that conceptually the goal of my program was super complicated or difficult. I wasn't trying to integrate fixture probing where I check each individual pocket and then I'm running a serializing program that counts up from a database and assigns the numbers to only the active pockets in sequence. Nothing that crazy. Nothing full Grimsmo. But it was so helpful to be able to bounce multiple iterations of this thing off ChatGPT and have it give me code variations back and say, I want to try doing it this way. Because what I initially did was the very first version, it was time-based. It was, I want this time interval and this number of spindle revs per interval. Okay. And I want the interval to loop X number of times, which would just say, go from here to here. Right. But say instead, I want a target RPM of 8,000 not to be exceeded. So no matter what speed I'm starting at, it will not ramp up 20 increments from start. It will only ramp up in this interval until 8,000 and stop. Right. Because I do not want to do something dumb and accidentally post code where the fan starts up at 3,000 RPM, which wouldn't blow it apart, and then adds 8,000 more RPM on top of that, which would blow it apart. Okay, right. And it was so fun. And I really enjoyed it. And I've played around with a few other things that I want ChatGPT to do. We don't have any other macros that we've made actionable yet on the shop floor that way. The other thing that I still have to integrate is you need a safety plane above your part to ramp up and ramp down at because as the blades spring close and spring open, your tool length effectively changes. Right, exactly. And so deciding how I want to do that, I'm still working on if I want a an absolute safety plane where it changes to the fan and it ramps it up right there in the spindle with no Z movement at all until it's ramped up. And only then does it then go to our work coordinate and hover over the part and blow all the chips and coolant off. Or if I want to have a safety plane that it's in some way relative to the active work coordinate where whatever the thing is, I want it to safety plane and ramp up four and a half inches above the part, whatever the Z zero is, and then come down to two inches above the Z zero and do your pattern. That is the kind of thing where if I do it the wrong way, it could create a landmine that some other programmer in my shop will step on a year or two from now. Yeah, exactly. We dealt with the same thing because in the Haas EC 400 part two video, doing a mm-hmm. walk around, we had installed air knives. It, well, we have air knives in a lot of our machines. Yeah. A lot more efficient, a lot more effective, quicker. And then a that, fan. Then a fan. Yeah. And so it didn't quite work in the EC because the distance was just too far and it it stuck out. We made a bracket to put it in. And and then the story in that video is my guy, Alex said, Hey, I found this old chip fan in a drawer. Did I think we stopped using it before he started working for me in 2019 or 18, something like that. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I forgot those exist. It's not standardized in our shop. Yeah. Use it. And so he wrote it, not, it was handwritten. It wasn't chat GPT. We didn't even think that far, but some type of thing where he aliased an M code an unused M code would go call a program, a 9,000 program. It's like the hidden backwoods programs that you don't want anyone touching. You can't even see it in the control unless you flip a, a setting. So he ran it, worked great. And then that was on like our rotovice setup, which is a lot more compact. But then when he ran our horizontal pallet systems, he's like, I just caught this. It would have crashed the blades in the beginning and the end because they unfold. That tool length gets uh, longer. 
So I was sitting there thinking, well, just keep the tombstone parked far away. But what no one tells you about those fans is they have a very distance dependent. Yeah, very much so. So it really, we just opted to just go, you know what? It's going to do a good job on our horizontal pallet system because it's close. It's going to do a bad job on the rotovice. Quite frankly, I don't know what their solution is right now. Is their idea? So they're going to solve it. But if you get those two alias M codes mixed up, that's catastrophic. Mm. Yeah. So we're opting to probably do away with it. Uh, I don't know. Or go to a shorter blade fan for that. Would you consider only putting it in one machine and not in the other? If it's useful in the horizontal, by the way, did you solve the chip capture problem on top of your pro pallet tombstone? Yes. That's been redesigned. Yeah. Nice. So, so we knew it'd be a problem. I thought that's a chip trap. Sure enough, it was a chip trap because we've got these four little air valves sticking up on the top. Now it's just a flat surface. So we aimed one of the nozzles. It has like shower system nozzles, just blast mm-hmm. right on it at the home position. Nice. Um, well, we're not going to get rid of air knives in the rest of the machines. They're great. Right. We just can't put one in the horizontal. Gotcha. That's my big problem. So, yeah, because it's a really slick way that we mount it. So I don't know if the brothers are the same way. No, they're probably not. But there's a tooling block accessory. I think we talked about this. We made yep. a bracket so that holds it. It's it's great. I, I'm considering selling them, but I don't know. There's a little, little bit of liability there. So probably going to opt. Yeah, I too. think there are, I mean, there are some mounting points sort of below and behind the spindle on a Speedio. Mm-hmm. nothing to either side of the spindle because of the way the tool changer works the entire spindle retracts up inside the tool changer wheel and it rotates and then the spindle comes back down and grabs the next tool but i know some people like paul's work holding makes a coolant block that bolts to the z-axis bolts to the casting behind the spindle that way your you know oh, like, coolant nozzles ride like hose clamp like it actually no it just there's threaded holes in the underside of the casting and they designed oh. a bracket with integrated coolant nozzles in it that just bolts right to that Okay. So conceivably, we could do something like that. The downside is because of its position, it would take all the coolant and chips and fling them onto the doors in the window. Not great. Yeah. Which is not, not ideal. No. So I didn't pursue that particularly just because I didn't like the direction it was going to make the mess go. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of bougie things we've bought for the shop, but one of those really expensive window spinner things is not on the list currently as super cool as those are mm-hmm. yeah it seems a little a little much to me hey along the s- same lines of i don't know diy accessories did you wait do you have renishaw probes yes okay someone on instagram made those like little little rings they look like just a small yes the probe halo yes i just bought a couple of those pat yeah. at old boys there he goes yeah what a great idea <laughs> yeah now it's one of those things where you look at it and go, why didn't I think of I that? I know. I know. That's what's so impressive and about it. That those are the best kind of inventions. The things you look at and just go, bam, smack your head and go, of course. Yeah. Like, have I ever programmed a Z axis, a Z, a Z depth wrong probing a bore and been like, oh no, as you're right. watching the probe, like go too, too, like, no, 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 too far. Right. <laughs> Stop. Desist. Yeah. yeah. And the confidence to know that if you miss the part and you Z wrong, or you're going to bump the body of the probe into a fixture. Totally. It's great. Yeah, I you know, it. I had this. We haven't installed like, them yet, but I got them. Okay. <laughs> we had a little problem. One of the probes, it, it, so to describe it for those that aren't familiar, it, it looks like a little wheel. It's a larger diameter than the body of the probe. 
it bolts on to the stylus, which is a single set screw. And if it gets bumped because the probe body hits the edge of a workpiece, you miss an edge, it'll alarm out. It's great. So I, I was thinking, why didn't Renishaw keep this as a standardized piece of equipment? It's not in their best interest to have that product on their probe. That's a bit uh, sinister, right? Yeah. Is it, well, is it? yeah, it's a little bit sinister, except that could be a numbers game. Uh-huh. It also might just be a thing they didn't think of. Hey, none of us thought of it. Really? Until Pat did. Yeah, cl clearly it was a thing that was, the design does not exceed the manufacturing capability of most small shops. There you go. Yeah. What it is, isn't particularly complicated. The creation of it and its application is the innovation. Yeah. The diameter and the details of the wheel are mostly incidental. Yeah. If that was a standard item from Renishaw and it reduced the number of customers who crashed their Renishaw probes, yeah, it might make their repair and replacement division less busy, mm -hmm. but it's, this is the Paul Krugman, a hurricane comes through and tears off all the roofs and blasts out all the windows. Great. It just generated a whole bunch of work for people to do to stimulate the economy. It's like, well, yeah, no, but it's fundamentally waste to destroy otherwise functional things. The additional work and economy stimulation that's created by Renishaw having to replace probes that got unnecessarily crashed to smithereens is a false economy. It's not actually growth. It's just extra work that rides on the coattails of avoidable waste. Mm -hmm. Well, now I, I know, no, finish your point. From, from Renishaw's perspective, they're getting paid. Yeah. Well, well, but, that's why I don't know any executives at Renishaw. So I'm going to, this is tongue in cheek, but I Im imagine an evil ivory tower <laughs> executive going, <laughs> no, we will not release that product. It'll crush revenues. That type of thing. Yeah. That's well, more I mean, story. Probably stuff. not. It's probably in German. Like, das ist true. Yeah. But if I were somebody at Renishaw and I saw that thing from Patted Old Boys, I would try to snap that up immediately. Right. Hey, can I buy the I'd try to I'd try to buy it from him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's not because the, even just to give customers the option, uh -huh. whatever money Renishaw would lose on probe repairs is money they would capture back at basically no cost. If they sell thousands of those things, that little wheel, if you tool up an automated cell to produce those in volume, mm -hmm. it'd be a profitable part. Well, I wanted to approach Pat and say, hey, we've got like the perfect machine to make these overnight. Can we just be like a distributor for you, you know, and, or do something like that? I don't know. It's too low of a price point for me to seriously consider. But if you're pricing it as an insurance, insurance is relatively cheap as to yep. for what it covers. I think every shop should have them. So maybe it costs 15 bucks to make. Do you sell them for 150 bucks? Certainly cheaper than a crashed probe. It's even cheaper than, in, in some cases, you crash one or two styluses. Styli oh, yeah, and that's a great at point. that cost. Yeah. What are they, like 80, 75? Depends on, depends. The actual Renishaw ones are more expensive, but you should, pro you should if you need. Cute. Well, McMaster sells them now. McMaster sells them. I've been using and really like the ones from Qmark Manufacturing. Yep. yep. They're and the they are at IMTS. I've had great conversations with those guys. They make tons of different types of probe styli. And 
in some cases, the quality and the concentricity of their stylus when I threaded it into them was better than the Renishaw that it had replaced. Wow. It was just like, oh, I put it in and I, it just, it's, it runs true. It's nice and straight. I had one Renishaw replacement stylus. I took it out of the package and I looked at it. And I'm like, it looks slightly curved. It looks yeah. just, it looks bent. It looks like the ruby is off center. And you can loosen the grub screws and true the whole thing up and put a dial indicator on it and then run your calibration on a gauge ring. And theoretically, it'll be precise, but it still looks wrong yeah. in the machine to have the stylus just look a little tilted. It doesn't, it's like, oh yeah, this is our ultra precision calibration equipment. It looks bent. Yeah. <laughs> Not a great look. Yeah. But yeah, Qmark Manufacturing, really cool company, really nice people, make yep. a great stylus. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend. Yep. Well, I've got a busy rest of the day. I'm going to shore up the machine. Thanks for chatting with me. I'm going to yeah. go sit in my comfy chair and answer some emails. And then I'm going to go set up those two machines, one with a checklist and one without. I like it. All right. Uh, next week, we should talk about the book Traction. I just started reading it. Have you read it? I have read it. We have implemented it. Great book. Awesome. Yes. We'll talk about it next time. Okay. Thanks, Jay. See you then. Have a great day. You Bye. too.